Hey, everybody, Pierre Quinn here. You're listening to episode 136 of the Leading Wild Green podcast, where my mission is to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Trey Taylor, author of the new book, A CEO Only Does Three Things, Finding Your Focus in the C-Suite. And before we jump into that conversation with Trey, I want to thank you so much for supporting the Leading Wild Green podcast. You listen to it, you rate it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, you share it on social media. Your support has been incredible. And the more that you share, if you haven't rated it, please rate it. Because the more that you share, the more that you rate, the more that you post on social media, it gives us access to helping more leaders on their leadership journey. Now, this podcast is brought to you by the Next Step Summit, November 24th, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Eastern Time. I am hosting the Next Step Summit, and I have an incredible group of guests who who are joining me for, for a series of inspirational conversations, all centered around helping leaders like you take the next step in uncertain times. So the Next Step Summit is bringing together leaders, authors, creatives, executives, and entrepreneurs. And we're really going to embrace the struggle, some of the challenges that we're all facing, but also shed some light on the incredible opportunities that we have to lead like never before in times like this. So I'll be joined by Candice Doby, Joseph Michelli, Sterling McKinley, Kirk Phillips, and Heather Day. You can read their full bios and you can register at prcquin.com slash next step at prcquin.com slash next step. I look forward to hanging out with you there. And I know you're going to enjoy this so much. And here's the thing. It's absolutely free, absolutely free. So make sure that you register and connect with us. Get your spot for the next step summit at prcquin.com slash next step. Okay, my guest today is Trey Taylor, author of the new book, A CEO Only Does Three Things, Finding Your Focus in the C-Suite. Trey Taylor is the managing director of Trinity Blue, a consultancy designed to provide executive coaching and strategic planning to C-suite leaders. His experience derives from fields as diverse as technology, financial services, venture capital, and real estate development. Frequently featured as a keynote speaker, he has addressed attendees at the Human Capital Institute, the Ascend Conference, and many other engagements. You're going to want to listen up. This is a great conversation with Trey Taylor. I'm excited to be joined on this episode of the Leading Wild Green podcast by Trey Taylor. Trey, thanks for being my guest today. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. So, man, I was kind of snooping around your LinkedIn page and there's a lot going on. Man, how do you how do you keep it all together? I don't know that I do keep it together. And, you know, it may not be a nice thing to say to somebody that they have a long LinkedIn page. That means that they're older than they used to be. and have a lot of stuff on there. You know, Um, you know, we just keep a lot of irons in the fire. And a lot Mm -hmm. of my uh, personal success is I recruit really well. Yeah. Uh, and so each of my business endeavors, I have someone who really is the point person who knows way more about the details of those businesses than I ever did. And uh, we form that into a really good cohesive management team. We get it done. So when you were really going through school or imagining life while you were growing up, 
did you have this mix of business and entrepreneurship and executive kind of coaching, mentoring? Was that part of what you thought your life was going to look like, or did you have it going in a different direction? You know, it's a funny question. It it really always sort of looked like that for me. Some kids play uh, GI Joe, some kids play house. I always played company. You know, I always <laughs> nice. had a store or I always had uh, some company and we were doing uh, hostile takeovers in the backyard or whatever it happened to be. It's always been something that fascinates me. You know, how can you marshal resources, get more of your share of the world by teaming up with other people. Yeah, that's always been a part of my uh, self-image and who I wanted to be in the world. Talk to me a little about about collegiate life. What, what was that experience like for you? And what were some of the lessons from there that you have been really maximizing on ever since? Yeah, I bounced around a good bit. So I went to a really small school to start with. And I had a professor who took me aside at the end of my freshman year and said, um, I think you can achieve higher than what this university can sort of uh, put in front of you. Mm -hmm. And so um, he helped me arrange for a transfer uh, to the University of Oxford in the UK, where I did some work there for about a year. And then I transferred back to the United States to go to, uh, to finish up college at Emory in Atlanta. And uh, so I got to see a very broad range of different university experiences. But what it really meant to me is that, um, you know, I was alone a lot of my college time. Like the guy that I know best is the 19-year-old version of myself, because when I lived in the UK, it was basically just me going through the motions, learning the stuff that I was supposed to be learning, but, you know, just in my head with that guy all the time. Um, So I learned a lot of... um, you know, sort of mental toughness from that experience and a lot of, um, you know, if I can say it that way, uh, just knowing how to be lonely without being lonesome. So what was it about the experiences that you've had up to this point that said, okay, Trey, it's time. It's time for you to write a book. So um, I went to law school because my dad thought that I should go to law school. I wanted to enjoy it, but I discovered pretty quickly that it wasn't for me. I didn't want to sell my life in 15-minute increments, Mm. but Mm. it was the most logical next step for somebody who was trying to do what I was trying to do in the world. And so I finished law school, and um, I knew for a fact I didn't want to publish uh, and be academic. I knew for a fact that I didn't want to practice and be in the courtroom and that sort of thing. It just wasn't appealing to me. I had skills in those areas, but it it just wasn't what I wanted to spend my time doing. And so uh, thankfully I came out right in the middle of the first internet bubble. And so Mm -hmm. there were a lot of jobs out there and I got hired uh, pretty quickly because of some connections that I had and some networking I had done uh, at a company that became WebMD. And so I was the first hundred people, you know, one of the first hundred people in the company there. And because we were really spread thin and they were doing amazing things you got to do things well above your pay grade. Hmm. And so, hmm. you know, I was working on, I was sleeping at the financial printer, working on deals that we would see in the Wall Street Journal two days later. So the largest private placement of equity in U.S. financial history was done by myself and three other older guys who kind of knew what they were doing. And I was clerking in the background there. Hmm. And, um, you know, they are they were really doing some amazing things. And so I got to see a lot of the C-suite from inside the C-suite, even though I really had no business being in that room, you know? And so I followed that uh, throughout the rest of my career, even though I was supposed to be in, you know, a, a little bit more of a, 
button down kind of, uh, you know, suit and tie law uh, practice, that kind of thing. I really didn't want to be there. And so I went from WebMD into a startup that we um, uh, secured venture funding for. I really got the venture bug and then went into the venture business uh, for a while. 9-11 happened Mm -hmm. and that put me in uh, to the C-suite over at Earthlink and ISP in Atlanta. And then I got uh, sort of my dream job at AOL where I was going to be doing some divestitures. Well, the phone rings and my dad had passed away very unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. And so and in 2005, and I was, um, I don't know, I was about 35, 36 years old at that point, you know, I had to come home and run a family business that I had never wanted to be a part of. Mm-hmm. And my dad had always told me, like, don't do this for a living if you can stand it. And so I didn't do that. So here I was, you know, grief stricken, first yeah. off. Yeah. Trying to learn a business that that I always had kind of thought I was too good for, incorrectly thought that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, instead of complaining about other people in the way that they lead, I was the one that had to do the leading. And so I had to really sort of muck through that for four or five or 10 or 15 years where I find myself today. I'm still not sure I've got it right. Mm. And a couple of years ago, I saw a speaker at a small conference. And he said, your only moral imperative is to be the person today that you needed when you were younger. I love that. And I thought about that. It really hit me emotionally. And I thought about that. And I said, you know, the only gift I could give my younger self is a handbook on how to be a CEO. Like, here's the shortcut. Don't make the mistakes I made. Do these things and no others. And then you can be successful. And so that's sort of the genesis of the book. That's the genesis of what I speak about and uh, the consulting work that I do with companies today. There are quite a few people who find themselves in a situation, maybe not exactly like yours from the mechanics of what you were doing, but maybe they can resonate with it from the emotional side. There has been some traumatic experience, some major shifts, some some death in their family, uh, some other desperate situation, and they find themselves having to manage the tension of that and you know, run companies, run businesses, take care of family and friends and handle affairs. How did you wrestle with the the emotional side of not just taking over a a, a business following the, the the passing of your father, but taking over his role in that business? How did you how did you fight and work through that? It's probably the most difficult thing I ever did. And so, um, you know, the only decision I remember making was number one, don't change a thing. Mm. Like he had this thing humming. He knew what he was doing. The business was working. If you come in and start trying to change things and you have no experience in the business, you really have no experience in the CEO's chair, that sort of thing. So the first thing I said for the first year, don't change anything. (laughs) Right. Secondly, lean on everybody. But third, you have to do what you can really clearly hear inside is the right thing to do. And so for us, we had uh, goals that my dad had set for the business for that year. And I got the team together and I said, I don't care what we have to do. uh, If it ends up losing money, anything at all, we're going to hit those goals. Mm -hmm. And the entire team rallied around that. We made it fun. We made contests. We we, uh, drew near to each other. Uh, in loving ways. Uh, we attended every birthday party, every funeral, every wedding, you know, everything. The company as itself became an extension of the family, us helping them, them helping us get through that grief. 
And, uh, and I said to myself, and I don't know that I recommend this, but I said to myself, you don't feel grief for 12 months. Hmm. And we hit the goal. I got on a plane and I flew to Napa with my girlfriend at the time. And uh, I had a complete break with it. You know, yeah. I had a, some good wine, uh, really good companionship, and just finally sort of let that grief uh, come to me in mm. a way uh, that I, I could still have a good time and still uh, participate. But then it became really real to me at that point. Again, I'm, I'm kind of telling you things. I don't know that I would recommend that anybody else do, but that's what yeah. had to be done at that point. I really had to listen to my heart at that point. I love your transparency on that tray and sharing the story. I think that's what makes the conversations on this podcast just of a different, a different tone because we, I find that guests are willing to share a bit more of the backstory and difficult parts of what, what is really the catalyst of the success that they, that they bring to the table today. So what's something that, and I know it's a ton of things. I'm sure you could write an entire book on this, this chapter or this, this topic alone. What are some of the things that you learned about you over the past 15 years? Yeah, I learned uh, when I took that chair that I wasn't as good as I thought I was. Hmm. Right. So when I'm playing, um, um, you know, company in my head, yeah. no one ever doesn't want to do what I say. They all want to pitch in and do exactly what I say. But when it's in real life, you know, you have to employ a whole range of uh, psychological um, tools and systems of belief and all of that sort of thing to get people to support doing things that by nature they may not want to do. Just by the law yeah. of entropy, you know, we want to keep going in the direction that we are going or we won't, we don't want to do anything that we don't have to do. And so getting people to see the bigger picture that was a really big deal for me. Number two, um, I acquired mentors as fast and as often as I could. Yeah. And one of my mentors taught me that we that we keep in ourselves an image, which may or may not be sort of objectively true, but it's one that we believe. Mm -hmm. And then we make unconscious choices to live that image out into the world. Mm -hmm. And that was probably one of the most powerful things I had ever learned. I think I tap into that um, well now, but uh, still at a uh, first grade or second grade level, um, because uh, I see it in a lot of people. I see it in myself, you know, that the more I work in interior wise and work about that um, idea of how do you see yourself and how do you want to be seen in the world, the more those results become real in the world in a way that's impactful to my life and my business. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that, you know, you were talking to your dad about this business and what it looked like and having to wrestle with it at a point, just thinking you're, you're too good for this. When did it switch for you from I'm too good for this to wait, I might be good enough to actually do this. And I know you talk about mentors and coaching and support and leaning on the rest of the organization, but when did you make that pivot uh, in your, in your mind? Um, at the end of the first year that I had sort of taken things over, my younger brother was in the business. Uh, he was partners with my dad mm -hmm. and um, he was devastated uh, by my dad's passing. They were very, yeah. very close. And um, he came to me at the end of that first year and he said, if you had not been here to do this work, we would not have made it. Mm. And um, 
it was the greatest compliment I think I ever received. Yeah. And it gave me confidence in the future years that were to come where I said, I can take that uh, without ego and say that I, that I really did give my all so that the team won as a whole. And, um, and it gave me a lot of confidence that I did know what I was doing when it came to, um, you know, planning future uh, activities and getting the team rallied around results. So that was probably the moment for me that I thought he's right. I can do this. Hmm. And I didn't realize it until that point. Man. Awesome. Awesome to hear, especially from, uh, from, from your brother in that regard. Uh, and, and, Man, pulling all of these insights and lessons toward the direction of writing this particular text, how did you how did you come up with the title? Like, how did you settle on that particular title? Even though the theme of the book is what it is, how did, how did you resolve the title? There was a blog post by uh, one of the great VCs of the world. His name is Fred Wilson, uh, mm-hmm. Union Square Ventures. As a matter of fact, uh, last night uh, I couldn't sleep and I got up and I took a copy of the book and I wrote a letter to Fred and slipped in the front of the book and I'm going to send it to him this week. And in that blog post, he was talking, he was very vulnerable. And he was talking about, Hey, you know, we've got to hire a new CEO for one of our portfolio companies. Mm -hmm. But in reality, I don't know what a CEO does. Like what's the job description of a CEO. And that hit different when I heard that. Yeah. And I thought, you know, I know the answer to that because I had to invent it from the ground up. Let me see if my answer equals his answer. And they do They're the same three things that a CEO can do. So when I was naming the book, uh, I had a lot of great suggestions from people that really cared. Uh, One of them was like the accidental CEO, because that's a little bit of my story and that sort of thing. But I didn't want this book to be, uh, you know, read this because you know or like or don't like Trey Taylor. (laughs) I wanted (laughs) it to be, uh, you know, that handbook for the younger me. What did I need to know at that point? And I needed to know that in 2005 those three things. So, so I called the book a CEO only does three things. I wanted it to be slightly controversial, you yeah. know, like a pebble in the shoe. I wanted it to prompt people to say, well, what are the three things? And that, you know, so that we can begin that conversation. And uh, so it's been, uh, it's been very successful as far as that goes. And uh, it's also, you know, people can remember things that come in threes. And so uh, I have a whole, army of folks that have been through uh, the material with me before, and they all know, boom, 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 what those three things are. Demystify the C-suite a little bit for us. I mean, some of us watch shows, Netflix and all those types of things, and it shows this picture, even the car commercials give you this depiction of this is what executives look like, and this is what they drive, and this is what life is for them. Give us sort of the reality check, especially for emerging leaders who are listening to this and are thinking maybe in their career, is the trajectory toward the C-suite? Yeah, you know, it's rarefied air to be in the C-suite. You quite literally, depending on the size of the company, are uh, the top three to 10 people in the entire company. And uh, if you think about it, you know, the larger the company, the more important the role, uh, the more of people's lives you have in the palm of your hand. Um, Not only... Mm. Uh, their paycheck or their continued employment or anything of that nature, but also the philosophical vision that they choose to align themselves with. And so if a CEO goes off half-cocked and says something political or insensitive to, uh, you know, a race or a gender or something of that nature, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are other people that have to pay that price as well. 
And, uh, and I like for C-suite people to understand the gravity of the nature of the job that they have. Um, C-suites are extremely in motion. They're extremely active all the time. Nobody's sitting around with their feet up in the C-suite. Uh, a friend of mine used to be the chief marketing officer at Eastman Kodak. And when he would come down to give a speech, uh, there would be somebody waiting at the elevator holding the door for him because those three seconds that he wouldn't have to stand around and wait on an elevator were big money, you know. And, and that's what we employ these people to do. That's what we pay them to do is to make every single second of their life impactful on the lives of all the employees and on the shareholders and stakeholders in the business. It's very high stakes. And, uh, you know, you have to be mentally tough enough uh, to run that race every single day. And that's not to talk about the politics mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, who wants whose job and all of that sort of thing. And, uh, and, uh, and the being nimble around uh, certain topics and issues and things like yeah. that, you know, it's a great art form. It's a great dance uh, for people that stay there for a long time. You, you talk about self-awareness you know, the, the key factor that self-awareness is and, and how many times the, the bigger the role, the more it may even reveal some things about you that you need to work on and find additional coaching in. Why is it so important even before you get to maybe an executive position earlier in your career for you to really lean into the importance of self-awareness? So it's really a lot about uh, the integration of personality um, you know, you, you have to, as we grow as professionals, you, you have to have a very good relationship with yourself. You have to be able to sit down with that man in the mirror and say, what did you do well today without taking an ego from it? And what could you have done better without taking a licking from that? You yeah. know, and to have that really honest fireside chat with yourself where you're not beating yourself up for a mistake or a missed opportunity but you're not patting yourself on the back too hard either for when you did it right. Um, you know, the greatest executives that I know uh, stride into decisions. They cross that Rubicon river. I talk a lot about uh, Julius Caesar, that story is in the book, as a matter of fact, about, uh, you know, he, he rides across the river Rubicon. He rides into history when he makes the decision to get something done. You know, the greatest executives that I know, they stride into decisions that way. They don't think that the decisions are right every single time, mm -hmm. but they're not paralyzed by having to make the right decision every single time either. And so in making more decisions, you improve your odds at making more right decisions. And a lot of people want to stay back, you know, really pull back on the reins and say, oh, let me equivocate or let me dither to the left or to the right yeah. before I make that decision as to what, you know, the right and perfect answer is going to be to a question because uh, motion so many times is uh, is more valuable uh, than than uh, a perfect decision. How can a leader shift the culture of their organization? Maybe they really cultivate an environment, maybe even out of ignorance, where th that type of space wasn't happening for people to be self-aware, to be reflective, to ask those tough questions. Hey, what'd you do today and not get the big head? Where, how'd you, where could you improve today and not get so down on yourself? If a leader is saying, I want to integrate this and form a new culture and make this shift, how can they go about doing that? 
Yeah, so um, the, the CEO absolutely has to understand that culture is one of the three things that he or she does, mm-hmm. right? And, and it's one of those three things because no one else can do it. So if he or she leaves the culture unattended, mm-hmm. then a different culture will arise. And the culture that arises, we call the least common denominator culture. And that's a culture that benefits the individual over the collective good. So if, uh, if, the, if the CEO doesn't care if people get to work on time, guess what? Nobody gets to work on time, right? And at some point, that will trickle down into other behaviors and that sort of thing. And here's the key to culture. Culture is simply how your values as an organization show up in the behaviors of your people. That's it. It's the secret manager. Nobody wants to be micromanaged and no one really wants to overmanage another person. There's always a lot of resentment that oh, I have to tell you this three times. And, you know, that 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 kind of interaction is very damaging to people on both on both ends of the spectrum. And so, um, you know, you want to have a very vibrant and built out and articulated and values based culture uh, so that everybody knows at all times this is what is acceptable to us as a group of people. And this is what is unacceptable and, and that which we will have no part of. So that's why it becomes imperative that a CEO does that. How, how does he or she do that? Um, hiring the right people. So uh, people is really the second leg of the stool there. And what does it mean by hiring the right people? It means simply hiring those people who uh, hold the same values, who value the same characteristics and behaviors and results as the rest of the group does. And if you can hire those people, you find them in the first place, you have to treat them like talent, like Hollywood treats talent. You know, George Clooney and I walk into a Starbucks uh, at the same time, he gets better treatment than I do. Um, and, and that's because he has been nurtured and developed as talent and people around the world will recognize uh, his talent is probably much greater than mine when it comes to acting. And that that kind of activity that he does. And so CEOs have to have to think of their staffs in terms of talent, in terms of who's the best leading man or woman for the role that we are scripting right now. In many cases, you may find in organizations that the CEO isn't as integrated into the hiring process. There's you know whole divisions and sectors that that manage that. Even when that's the case, what is the relationship that the CEO should have uh, in the people in, in talent acquisition and and personnel development, despite having whole divisions that that manage that sort of thing? Yeah, it's something that we fight against uh, pretty frequently, as a matter of fact. So if the CEO is not uh, able to touch every single hire in some form or fashion, uh, then there must be some organizational design work where the things that he or she would do in those interactions are mirrored all the way down the organization. And so one of the tricks uh, that we use there is we use something called manager once removed. So the hiring manager and the HR person are not the ones to make the final decision on hiring somebody. We want that manager's manager to be involved as well, all the way up the line of the company. Um, But I also think it's a false question when CEOs say to me, well, I can't be involved in recruiting people. 
Larry Page, when he ran Google, he had tens of thousands of employees when he did this. Um, no one could get the final up or down on a job until he had reviewed the job description and the resume. Until he could see, this is what Google says it needs, and this is the person that we think is the best fit for it. Now, if he could do that, running Google in its absolute heyday of growth, why can't uh, we do that? Why can't somebody, I have 19 employees myself, why can't I pay specific attention to who's coming in the door? Because those literally are the people who are going to keep your promises, to keep you safe when you get out of line, uh, to represent your company when you're nowhere to be found. Those are the people uh, who are going to do those things. And that's a very important thing for the CEO. So I understand maybe at Kraft Foods that the CEO doesn't walk down and say, you know, this guy who's going to be in charge of Velveeta, uh, you know, has to come meet me and play golf with me and all of that sort of thing. I understand that. But he absolutely has the opportunity and the obligation to make sure that um, that that person is hired as if he was standing in the room and interviewing them. What are some of the fears that come into play when, you know, executive says, well, I don't have time or, you know, we have whole divisions or I'm not the, maybe I'm not the best person to do that. What are some of the fears that might be activated that in, as you write and as you as you teach and do keynotes that you are really asking leaders to face and be able to work through as it relates to getting actually getting that close to people? You know, people and CEOs, the personality types that are sort of associated with that um, position in the organization specifically, love to do concrete things that have a beginning, a middle, an end result. And people are squishy and messy and they don't have that. And so, um, you know, that's something that I, uh, that, I, that I coach CEOs a lot around is making sure that you understand that every single thing that you touch is not going to fit into the same box of those uh, beginning, middle, and end. Uh, people specifically are, are not ever going to fit in that box. And you're going to create drama in your own mind and life and in the minds and lives of those around you if you try to make that happen. So there's often a fear that, well, if I pick that up, then how do I lay it down? How do I step away from it? Uh, There's a fear also that if I'm the one that hired this person, but he's working for someone else, uh, are they going to reach out to me to be their manager, to reach around them and, you know, do favors for them or something of that nature? And, you know, my answer, as in with so many other things, it's all organizational design. So we have a very robust interview process um, at my company. I do the first interview with everybody. It takes 90 minutes. I talk 85% of the time. Probably won't be a surprise to you on the podcast, but I talk about 85% of the time in that because what I want to do in that interview is really set the stage of what the candidate should see when he sees anybody else in the organization. And then other people come through and they we have themed interviews that they go through and we talk about the competence necessary in the job or the compensation or the commitment necessary. They meet with the person who will be their manager. They meet with other people in the organization. I always carve out uh, a meeting with the last person that got hired uh, so that you can sort of shut the door and say, hey, yo, they're telling me all this stuff. You've been here six weeks. Is it true? You know? And then people can say, no, these guys are full of crap or dude, everything they said is exactly like they said it was going to be. 
So, you know, we do all of that by design because we, we, we try to be sensitive to what it's like going into an organization when you're not at the top um, and, and remember how that feels and the trepidation that you have and the fear that you have that, gosh, am I making the right decision? Am I joining the right organization? Are these people as good as they want to dress up to be during an interview process? Uh, so we try to sort of second guess a lot of those things up front, but, um, but all we're doing is addressing those fears at that point. Now, we talked about culture and we talked about people in your book. You mentioned this third thing, numbers, numbers. And I know this can get a lot of people or does get a lot of people in trouble because we don't pay attention. Maybe we're only looking at bottom line or maybe we're only looking at a specific line item. How when you talk about numbers frame for us the overall picture that a CEO uh, needs to have and how do how does managing that picture actually put them in a better position to do the people work and the culture work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of my favorite quotes in the book is Clarence Avant. And he said, uh, you know, life begins and ends with a number. You're not going to get away from numbers. In business, we have numbers. But what do numbers really mean from a philosophical standpoint? Numbers simply mean uh, a progress and measurement against an objective standard of truth. That's it. That's all we're trying to put together when we talk about numbers. So as a CEO, and a lot of CEOs tell me, hey, numbers are not my job. That's the CFO's job. No, the CFO's job is to measure and monitor and report and potentially strategize around those numbers. But the CEO's job is to be transparent about the creation of the agenda around numbers. And so if I'm the CEO, I say, look, we're going to sell 100,000 laser printers or 3D printers this year or whatever my business is. That's the number that everybody needs to know. And everybody in the organization needs to understand how what I do on a daily basis affects that one number. Transparency, communication, setting the agenda around the numbers, and then letting everybody know on a very frequent basis, how are we doing with regard to that number. Give me a, a story or give us a story as as we're coming down to the end of this conversation, a story about maybe someone you coached or maybe it was a keynote that you gave. And you know, after the presentation or after a series of coaching sessions, uh, the person just, it started to click, some changes, you saw the turnaround and you walked away from that particular scenario saying, you know, this is why I do this work. This is why I've committed to um, not just being the person that I needed, but also b- creating a framework for other people to be the person that they needed uh, from these experiences. Yeah, I had a client in uh, Texas and the CEO had retired and this person had been, you know, effectively the COO for a long time. She had been the number two for a long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, she ran that business. There's no question about it whatsoever. But there was one level of thinking, that executive level of thinking mindset that she wasn't quite there yet. Um, this was in a particularly um, you know, small town type atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And there were people in that business who did not believe that a woman should have the top slot. They didn't think she had, per- personally, she had the capability of doing the job. And that sort of thing. And so she came to me, her, her boss came to me and said, uh, we want to hire you as her executive coach. And we want you to teach this methodology because that's how we want this business to work. 
And it has worked in a different way because we've had a different CEO for 40 years. And so uh, we did work together for three years. And uh, the first year we focused only on culture, on getting the cultural rituals in place, on, uh, on writing out the value statements, uh, on praising people when they did things right in, in accordance with those value statements. Uh, it was a weekly um, process for me, but it was a, an hourly process for her. And every time that she would get some sort of, um, you know, little lady comment or something of that nature, she had to dig deep, come back and um, and really, you know, respond in the right way. So we worked together for a couple of years on that, three years. And uh, we did culture people numbers and, and we, we touched those things all the time. The entire time she had uh, decided to go back to get her master's degree or MBA. So she was doing that as well. Uh, she was really a phenomenal person. And uh, at the end of the three-year uh, process, uh, it was pretty clear that they were going to pass her over for this position. And I thought it was a real tragedy. And, um, and I said as much to the boss and I said as much uh, to her. And she sat back and she said, I'm okay with that. I'm not going to be the number two here any longer. She had been there 30-something years. Um, but I now know that I know more about how to build a culture, how to run a company than anyone that I've ever worked for. And so if they don't award me the final position, um, then that's okay. And I'll simply pick up stakes and go and find someone who does value me in that way. Um, I was pretty conflicted about whether she should do that or not. Uh, she did that. She turned it into a much better opportunity where she 4 her paycheck. And uh, she works for an army of people now that don't question whether she can do something uh, because she's a lady or because she started as a secretary or any of that sort of thing. They follow her because she knows exactly where she's going. She knows how to communicate it. She knows how to be fair. She looks at her people as talent and, uh, and treats them in a certain way. And, um, and she really does play everything by the book like we've, like we've taught here. And she's one of my real uh, heroes from that standpoint. But I can't tell you how good you feel when, uh, when, you're, when you're sitting in her office looking at her and she says, I'm okay. I'm going to move on with my life because they don't value what I value, which is me. That was a real win for me. Incredible story. Almost got little, little goosebumps listening, listening <laughs> to it. You know, there's a there's a lot of content out there, Trey. There's so you know the Amazons, the Barnes and Nobles of the world, wherever your bookstore, you can find you know tons of content on the web. There's there's a lot of options, and as a person as maybe being the company is maybe grooming them for an executive role, or they're considering it, or maybe their early career and want to get some insights on you know what exactly a CEO does out of all the options out there right now, there's some great books and even people you've quoted. Why should people pick up a copy of a CEO only does three things? You know, again, it, it's written for people who are in the situation that I was in. So success is never a, a, a straight line between point A and point B. There are always deviations. Those deviations can create joy and they can create dismay. 
in my life, when I try to plan from getting to, from point A to point B, I try to keep that line as true uh, and straight as I can. And a lot of times I do that by asking people, if you've taken this journey before, where did you make a wrong turn? And when they say I did it here or I did it here, then I recognize those things when they come up and I try not to make those same decisions. doesn't mean I always make it correctly, but at least I try to minimize the deviation from the standard. That's what this book is about. It's about paying attention to what a CEO really is supposed to do on a daily basis. And it's not running a to-do list. It's not answering emails from angry customers. Yes, those are part of anybody's day but it's about focusing on the long-term every single day. And the long-term of culture, people and numbers defines your organization far into the future, even to the stage of legacy when you're probably not a part of it. I call this section of the podcast, shameless plug time. I mean, we're, oh, we're talking about your book, so we got to give the people <laughs> the social media handles, the URLs, coupon codes, whatever it is to get people in your direction. How do we get a copy of a CEO only does three things and how do we follow up with more of your work? Good. I appreciate that. Uh, So Amazon has the book. We have paperback, hardback, uh, Kindle. We have an audio book in the works. Hopefully it'll be out uh, first quarter of next year. So uh, I would love people to buy 10, 15, 20 copies of that, give them away as presents, whatever they like to do. Uh, And then my consulting uh, website is trinity-blue.com. Uh, I post content there. Uh, People book me for speaking there, consulting, uh, one-on-one coaching, any of that kind of stuff. They can find me there. My guest on this episode of the Leading Wild Grain podcast has been Trey Taylor, author of the book, A CEO Only Does Three Things, Finding Your Focus in the C-Suite. Trey, thanks for being my guest today. Thank you, Pierre. Great conversation with Trey Taylor about his new book, A CEO Only Does Three Things. Open, honest, transparent. Trey shared some of the triumphs and some of the challenges of his leadership journey. And I hope you're planning to get your copy of A CEO Only Does Three Things and planning to connect with Trey. I put some links in the show notes so that you can only be just one click away and you don't have any excuse not to follow up with Trey. Hey, I'm recording this podcast episode on a Sunday night and the next step summit happens on a Tuesday morning. So you got time to register prcquin.com slash next step. That's all I got for this episode of leading wild green podcast. So until next time, take care and God bless.